Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Towns, and I want to welcome you back to our opening year episode of the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast for 2023. We're glad you're here. It's a new year, but it's the same old Borgo Pass Horror Podcast, so don't worry about that. Uh, Again, I'm Jim Towns. I'm one of your co-hosts. With me is Livio Marino, my regular co-host. Hey, Livio. Hey, hey. How's it going? There he is. Awesome. Uh, And again, today we are going to be talking about the Inner Sanctum episode of Weird Woman from 1944. Uh, It's a story about a college professor traveling to a tropical island to write a book, and he brings back a young bride who was raised by Native Islanders with uh, uh, their superstitions ingrained in her. And he comes back to his sort of suburban college culture and lifestyle and her inclusion into it uh, creates kind of a love triangle and causes all sorts of havoc. Um, it is. It stars Lon Chaney as Norman Reed. It stars Anne Gwynn as Paula Reed. We know her from House of Frankenstein. We just talked about her. Evelyn Ankers, uh, Lon Chaney's frequent co-star, uh, stars as Ilona Carr. Ralph Morgan from Night Monster uh, stars as Professor Millard Sawtell. Elizabeth Russell plays his wife, Evelyn Sawtell. Uh, she was in Bedlam and The Corpse Vanishes with Bella Lugosi. Phil Brown plays David Jennings. We know him most. Do you know where he's most famous from, Olivia? He is Uncle Owen from the original Uncle Star Wars. Uncle Owen in Star Wars. 30-some years later, he would play Uncle Owen. It's, uh, it's his most famous thing. Here we can see him uh, quite young. It's kind of great. Um, and uh, finally, Lois Collier plays Margaret. Uh, she was in Jungle Woman and the Cat Creeps, which hopefully we'll be talking about at some point. Um, the story is based on a Fritz Lieber Jr. story. Uh, the screenplay was adapted and was written by Brenda Weisberg, who uh, who wrote Mad Ghoul and Mummy's Ghost. It's directed by Reginald Laborg, who also did uh, uh, Mummy's Ghost. Uh, he did Jungle Woman. Um, Reginald Laborg kind of brought back. It, it seems like there's like a little team Universal was doing here, right? And 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 Reginald Laborg kept again, obviously Mummy's Ghost with Lon Chaney. He'd worked with him before. Um, is it before or after this, right? Yeah. Yeah, before. no, Mummy's Ghost is after this, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think I think Leborg did uh, Calling Dr. Death as well. Yeah, he did. I believe that, he, he did, was, yes. Was the first Inner Sanctum, so, and that was right after right. the Mummy's Ghost. So he's he's had some experience with uh, with Chaney anyways by this point. <laughs> Dealing with Lon Chaney, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Libya, so can we – let's do we, – because we've done one episode of – Inner Sanctum already. We did... Strange Confession. Strange Confession. That's right. We did that last year. Um, Inner Sanctum was, if I understand correctly, Inner Sanctum was... We're at a point here in 1944 where Universal has almost no... They're still cranking out some horror, but they have no real horror stars in the stable except for Lon Chaney Jr. at the moment, right? Um, Lugosi's last... Lugosi does Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in 42, I think. And then he doesn't yeah. do another universal film until 48 with, with Abner Costume Frankenstein. So there's this, there's this like four to six year gap here where, um, and, and Karloff, obviously we talked about it in house of Frankenstein episode. They brought him back and he did climb the climax and he did house of Frankenstein. Um, 
And except for, I think, John Carradine pops in and out a lot here. Janie's their, their main guy, and he wasn't happy with doing The Mummy, as we have talked about recently. So, so Inner Sanctum was, if I remember you saying correctly, Inner Sanctum was sort of like a bit of a peace offering for them to try and keep him engaged and, and doing work that he was enjoying. Yeah, I, I think he was, I think by this point, you know, um, by the end of 42 and 43, you know, he had played the Wolfman twice. He'd played Frankenstein's monster. He played the mummy twice, mm-hmm. played Dracula. And and while those were all very successful and, and made him a star, I think he was wanting to try his acting chops out in different ways. And he, he'd always really wanted to be a, a leading man. Um, right. And, you know, the, the, as a, uh, as a man and not a monster. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I don't think Universal really saw him that way. So th- I think this was their way to say, okay, you can play a quote unquote leading, you know, non supernatural character without the makeup and all that stuff, but we can still kind of advertise it and promote it as a quote unquote horror or, or thriller type right. of type of show. Yeah. And, and these, these, Movies are are just uh, I I like how they all just sort of touch on the supernatural just enough. They touch on the weird and the uncanny, uh, what some call the outer a, um, just just enough that they they can kind of fall into that category. They but it's it's a little tenuous. They they are, but they're sort of like psychological thrillers. Really, I don't I don't know if that was really a a subgenre at the time that was acknowledged, but that's that's basically what they are. They 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 deal very much with human psychology and the dark side of human psychology, which I think is, I mean, you know, there's room for everything in in film and and even in the Universal Horror stable. And sure, sure, you have the Mummy's Tomb, and sure you have, uh, you know, like man man made monster. But then here you have, you know. This kind, this kind of horror too, like this sort of subtle horror yeah. and stuff. And I, I just think it's they're good character pieces too, which is the thing I like. They're like little plays. I, I think they're, I think it's great, and I think it's great that that they're available now in a really nice format from uh, from uh, who's who's the distributor of these? It, Mill Creek. Or, is, yeah, yeah, Mill Creek did the, these. Put the blue like, air, Blu-ray out, anyways. Um, yeah, they, yeah, they were it's, on, it's a nice set. Yeah, they were on uh, they were on DVD previously, and of course, in like in the real late nineties. Like ninety nine or so, they started popping up on on VHS. But yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it is it is almost put together like a play, and you know, it, it's it's a great. Each one of these films has a great ensemble cast. Um, mm-hmm. Cheney, you know, unfortunately, kind of plays, with the exception of like maybe two films, plays kind of the same type of role, same part. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of the center of the story, but not really the active mover of the story is interesting. Right. Yeah. He, he's always things happen to him. A ex- lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he gives yeah. him, it gives him a chance to get that worried and, and kind of, kind of troubled look on his <laughs> face was, for half the film. I was going to talk about, about the, his fretfulness. Yeah. In this. We'll, we'll probably get to that. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. The fretful expression. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, and, and the thing, and I, I was going to talk about this later, but I'll throw it out now. Like as we move through it, like the, these were not made for a lot of money. These were, I don't want to say they were cranked out, but they were done for a, for a, you know, a lower budget. They were not big showpiece films like House of Frankenstein was, right? I mean, that was a, sort of a marquee universal film of, of around this era in, in Universal Pictures. Um, but the benefit of if it all being under one house is 
this this film and and the other inner sanctums and and a lot of the other cheaper like horror island and and movies like that that the universal did they still had all their core crew their lighting directors their dps gaffers um uh uh you know set designers and everything and so while done quickly i know and 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 having to be pretty efficient of in story and everything these these it it still looks like a million bucks there's the scene where he we'll get to it obviously where he chases um Paula through the cemetery and finds her kind of hidden altar thing like that. That looks like it's right out of the Wolfman. It's gorgeous looking. There's not a bad shot in these movies. No, and that's that's kind of like the the universal touch. And I I, I know we say we've said that a lot. You know, it, like you know, Universal's kind of secret recipe and whatnot, or the universal touch. But I think mm. ultimately it boils <clears throat> down to the directors and and the people working. Behind yeah. the scenes, as well as the actors, obviously, but uh, you know, guys like Reginald DeBorg, who you know, even though he was given something and without a lot of amount of time to prepare or anything like that, I think I was reading up on on this movie before we before we started talking here. I think they said that they called him on a Friday, gave him the script, and said we start shooting a week from Monday. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, yeah, that's- he, you know, he he didn't even have a chance, I think, to get familiar with the the original conjure wife story that this you know this yeah script is even based on but it, it's like it's like your it's like our mummy thing right like your next your next assignment should you choose to accept it is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right no no for sure and and again like he you know he's not a hack they brought in a real talent to, to do this um you know at the same time you do have um someone as a little christmas gift just gave me at the dvd version of black dragons the, the monogram film with with Lagos, you know, I was watching a little bit of it last night and it's its own fun and everything. But like the thing I really do notice right away is like the lighting and everything, everything's so flat and staged and 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 static and really, you know, you don't have that camera movement, you don't have that active, active camera, you don't have uh any of the expressionistic touches. And and obviously monogram films were made for I mean, the budget of this film dwarfs the the budget for your standard monogram film. Yeah. Those were that there's a reason they called it poverty row. But but just having said that, like, like it, it's a marked difference. And, and we talked about this on, on Brute Man, how it came out through PRC, but obviously was made at Universal and had all its assets, including getting to use, you know, music from The Wolfman and, and other older, uh, you, know, you know, previous Universal films that just elevates the, the thing dramatically. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this, I mean, the very first scene here is, is you hear music straight from... The yeah. Wolfman and goes to Frankenstein, you know, so it, mm-hmm. it gives that mm-hmm. that familiarity to it of, uh, oh, yeah. this is a universal horror film. <laughs> yes, and then Vera West is still dressing everybody and John Fulton's doing the effects and, and everything. Yeah, so the, the gang's all here. It's 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 so cool. Uh, and I'm glad we, we get to, to add these into the, the little repertoire here at Borgo Pass. Um, so as Livio was saying, the movie does start out with um, a woman hurrying through this kind of suburban neighborhood, uh, it's it's very windy. Uh, she's trying to avoid uh, the sort of patrolman walking by. Um, it's this kind of white picket fence neighborhood, which is hilariously uh, actually what I I, I noticed because we've watched this movie similarly. The house she walks up to is the same house that the creeper walks up to in the brute man at the beginning of it. Um, the first woman he kills after he goes past the at the very beginning of that film when he goes past the university and spooks out the kids at the soda pop shop. And then he yeah. goes past this little white picket fence, this house with the little porta cachet and everything. And it's, yeah, it's the same house. It's been, it's been changed. It changes a little bit between this film in 44 and, and creeper in 46, I think, uh, or uh, Broodman, I should say, but yeah, same house. Um, 
So it's a house where bad things happen on the on the back lot of <laughs> the, Universal here. Yeah, it's a cursed house. <laughs> I don't know if this is what would become Mockingbird Lane, where they would film the Munsters, and then later on Desperate Housewives. I I wouldn't be surprised if it's right up in that. There's a little area up on Universal Studios on the hill, and you go past the uh, the, the house that was the best little horror house in Texas. Uh, remember the Dolly Parton and <laughs> yeah. Burt Reynolds movie, right? From our childhood. Um, uh, and, and you hang a left there, and that's Mockingbird Lane, and, and famously, obviously, where the Munsters Mansion was, and, and where they filmed, uh, oh, what's the Joe Dante film? The Burbs. The Burbs yeah. was filmed on Mockingbird Lane, famously, yeah. It's a little cul-de-sac of these kind of older-looking houses. Um, also, uh, Ghost of Mr. Chicken. Sorry. That's the end of my Universal Black Lot <laughs> trivia for the for the episode. Hopefully, <laughs> you see what you've been doing bragging that I've break. gotten yeah. I've gotten to hang out on that street. Yeah, I know. I'm just I'm just bragging at this point. Um, my my buddy Scott uh, Tobis, his wife worked on Desperate Housewives, and I got to do the golf cart thing, not the tram thing, the actual golf cart where we got to bounce around and get oh, on nice. the porch of the Psycho Mansion and stuff. Yeah, it was pretty freaking cool. Um, I took pictures, but it was 2005, and like the pictures are like four megapixels, right? <laughs> They're like the size of a poster stamp. <laughs> Blurry. And at some yeah. at some point, I'll find them. Yeah, I know. Anyway, all right. Um, uh, the this this woman who we do find out eventually is, is uh, Paula Reed. Um, she's the wife of Norman Reed, who is a professor at a college called. Oh, well, we'll we'll I'll I'll get to the point where I, I remember the name of the college at some point. Um, it's after the flashback. Uh, I actually don't remember it either. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Well, hang on, we're gonna look at some notes. Monroe College. It's called Monroe College. Um, and there and there's a picture of of I think President Monroe at some point in the thing. Just to let you know that, I, you wonder if they just had a a portrait of of James Monroe somewhere, and they're like, well, we have a portrait. Let's call it Monroe College because it's <laughs> just laying around. <laughs> we have yeah. a portrait of the guy. Yeah, right. Might as well. Who cares? Um, who knows? Anyway. Um, uh, this lady, who we knew was Paula uh, later on, um, she sneaks into the house very quietly. She tiptoes up to the bedroom, um, and she sneaks past her husband, Norman, who is downstairs, and he's working in, in his home office. Um, Norman, obviously, is played by Lon Chaney uh, in his... There's a mustache phase here with Chaney in between... <laughs> It, now yeah. I have to consult my notes again. There's so it's like between forty forty four and forty five. There's the mustache comes and goes, right? Yeah, I think so. With the exception of Son of Dracula, I think anytime you see Cheney, well, I'll put it this way: anytime you see Cheney that's not in some form of monster makeup and he has a mustache, mm-hmm. he's some type of heroic character. So it, even in uh, oh wow in House of Dracula, uh, you know, as Lawrence, he, Talbot, he has the mustache. He, he has a mustache because yes. he doesn't kill anybody and he ends up. Which is forty six, yeah, yeah. Ends up saving, you know, the the day. The he, he does, he's very heroic, yeah. And uh, in, in House of Dracula, however, or House House of Frankenstein, which we just talked about, however, he doesn't. Although because right. he he is the Wolfman, I have a theory that I think he I think he was. We'll get to the movie, guys. I think, I think Cheney <laughs> was doing. You've been here long enough. You you know we eventually get there. Um, uh, I I think Cheney was doing the mustache thing. I have a theory that I'm pretty sure when he played the mummy, I'll bet you he had to shave it off because that appliance looks like it glued to his upper lip. And I don't think... It did glue to his lip, yeah. I I mean, I maybe you could glue it to the upper lip with the mustache on, but when you pulled it off, I bet you you wouldn't have a mustache. It'd be, like, it'd be basically like waxing your lip. So I would be willing to bet he had to shave it off whenever he went and did the mummy. And, and I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if in House of Frankenstein... They were like, you know what, like, let's not have the mustache because you're Lawrence Talbot, and we know Lawrence Talbot not having the mustache. So when he finally shows up in House of Dracula and he's got it, it's like, oh, man, Lawrence Talbot is, 
he's changed a little bit, you know, and and he, and we talked about that in that movie. Like he's he changed quite a his character changed quite a bit between Frank, House Franks and House of Dracula. He becomes oh, a, yes. kind of a more more self possessed person, um, which is really interesting. But having spoken that, um, yes, he he does. This is and he has a mustache in all the Inner Sanctum movies, I, I believe, because yeah, they, he I does. Think they shot them all pretty um, quickly together. Yeah, and I, you know, there's a. We keep referencing all these other movies, but there's a um, the last time you see the Wolfman in House of Dracula is where he's he's strangling Doctor Adamon in the cave, um, and it's it gives that shot of him transforming from the Wolfman into Lawrence Talbot. There's this kind of a brief right. scene where you see kind of hair disappear, and he, it looks uh-huh. like he doesn't have a mustache, and then he has a mustache again. So I know in in most of these Inner Sanctum films, I think this one included, they actually had Cheney wear a hairpiece. Which is, I mean, I, I guess they just wanted more volume. I mean, he had hair, mm-hmm. so yeah. So I, I'm not sure if the mustache was also just uh, <laughs> just makeup, or or maybe he actually had it. I'm not sure. I think we had a conversation as to uh, when we did the. I'd have to go back and listen to the episode if if, if the mustache was real or not, or if it was just a, 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 a it was actually a makeup choice. And it's you know it's 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 Jack Pierce, so it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah, that that was that was what he did. Sometimes he can make you a Wolfman. Something can look make you look like he had a mustache. Um, <laughs> Obviously, obviously, uh, Doctor well, Nemo in, in your neck, in, real. <laughs> in, yeah, yeah, exactly. In in House of Frankenstein, you know, at the beginning, Karloff didn't grow a gigantic beard. He that was a fake beard, but it looks a heck of a lot better than a lot of fake beards in a lot of old movies. Well, that's how so. dedicated Karloff was to his craft. He took two, like three years off of acting to <laughs> three grow years off the beard. And just grew a gigantic, <laughs> yeah. gigantic Grizzly Adams beard. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so uh, as Paula's sneaking up and Norman's uh, talking, we, we we do we visit. Uh, she she goes into her, her bedroom and she arranges some some ribbons, and then we later on see some shells and stuff. And and what we're seeing is that she is uh, practicing some ritualistic things that that are based on her upbringing. Um, and we get into that a little bit more later. But I like the little tease there. So. Um, Norman is downstairs writing, um, uh, and he's writing things that like man's struggle upward from his dark past is the struggle of reason against superstition. And he's writing thing, and he's and then he's kind of thinking about what he's going to write next. And we we go into the inner monologue thing of mm-hmm. again, people joke that inner sanctum should should have been called inner monologue because um, there's a <laughs> lot of voiceover of, of we're is. inside his his brain, which is no different than you know, I mean, a lot of movies that do that. Um, he says things like he's thinking things. I should say, like the so-called phenomena of mysticism and sorcery are brought out through fear. Fear is the living complice of millions. I think I'm not sure. Um, making them believe in such the it does a good. It sets up it, from the beginning of the movie. We set up this idea that th- this question, I should say, that is is the belief in superstition. Um, is is it self fulfilling prophecy or does it actually have power? Norman is a scientist and a and a and a, and a uh, you know a thinker, obviously a, 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 a educator, um, and his work. What we find out is is based on the idea that it, it's about it's about logic versus superstition, and he sees them as two different things at the beginning of the film that that don't mix that that. Um, yeah. He sees superstition as as a shield people use to to deny a lot of psychological stuff and 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 things like that. Yeah, um, it's, it's like that uh, you know the age old 
science versus religion, you know, whereas yes. you, you, you have a lot of beliefs that, but, and then on one side, you know, strong beliefs, you know, and that, and we see that, you know, when it flashes back to when, um, Norman first meets Paula kind of in the island tribe and, mm-hmm. and they're like, no, no, you can't cross this line. You'll be, you know, cursed. And, and this, that shooting star was a sign from the, and then he's like, oh, come on, of course not, you know, and he has, it's that whole, Logical yes. brain versus, you know, kind of the spiritual, supernatural type type brain. Right, right. He's a, he's a modern man of reason, and and he sees this as over. Um, more subtly, there's a little bit of a idea of like Western white person European logic versus uh, uh, more traditional uh, Aboriginal people's uh, belief system. You know, yeah. this is, so there's this kind of it's it's like in the mummy movies where they go and like, oh, the curse of Imhotep, ah, silliness, right? And then, sure enough, you know. Um, but I think this film, instead of it, it delves deeper into it, and and I think at its core, it's about this this idea, like I said, about self fulfilling prophecy, where if you if you break a mirror and you believe hard enough, say that you're going to have bad luck because of that, does your belief that you're going to have bad luck somehow bring? you know, misfortune to you, you know, do you do things differently that if you hadn't done them, you wouldn't have had bad fortune, but because you believe you're going to have bad fortune again, it's the self-fulfilling prophecy. I, I, and, and it, what I like is, I mean, the film doesn't quite give you the answer to that. It doesn't say, yes, this is the answer to this. It, it lets you, it lets you suppose, uh, it leaves you, you know, with, with some thoughts and stuff. And I, I think in that way, it's a really, while the story itself gets a little, uh, repetitive maybe yeah i i think the i the concept that the film is getting across comes across like really effectively yeah definitely i agree and it, it's i think the the original story this was based on was much more um i, don't, I guess dark much more superstitious right. much you know it, and, and really left a lot so i would like to read i think that'd be really fun yeah from i've not read it but from what i've you know, seen or, or read read about that story, it seems like it's a really kind of cerebral thriller. And I think this right. was turned more into a melo, you know, melodrama, <laughs> melodrama kind of pot boiler. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, to fit to fit the the genre it needed to. Is Fritz Lieber Jr. the guy who wrote the fantasy books like Fafir and the Gray Mouser, or is that Fritz Lieber Senior? Do you have any idea? Or is that I'm, a different? I'm not sure. We're gonna, someone's going to answer that on the Instagram yes. <laughs> page. I can almost guarantee you that right now. I can't wait to find out. Um, I don't even have to do the research. Everyone, Someone will do it for me. It's awesome. Um, so there's a... <laughs> the, the, what, we, what we find out is the, the Sawtells, who are another couple, live either next door or across the street. Uh, I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure of the geography. But Evelyn Sawtell is looking out the window and actually sees Paula sneaking down the road and into the house and takes it upon herself to call Norman and, and tell him that his wife was sneaking into the house. She's a bit of a nosy neighbor. Um, uh, so, so Norman get, having gotten the phone call thinks like, well, no, that's silly. She's upstairs in bed. And then he hangs up and he's like, well, maybe I should go check. And he goes up and he checks in bed. And, and Paula has done a good job of, you know, tucking herself in and making it seem like she was, she was sleeping. Um, but when he goes up, he, uh, Norman finds these these shells and and sl- the let's call it an altar that she's kind of created for protection for herself and and here's our first chance of him uh, putting into practice the what he's writing about saying like 
this is just ridiculous. I've got to break you of all this, you know, this, this super. Meanwhile, like, you know, his, his office is decorated with all sorts of totems and masks yeah. and spears <laughs> and, 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 you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, native items that he has collected in his, in his travels, because what we find out is that, that he, um, again, he's, he's a, he's an educator. Um, there's my iWatch trying to answer questions for it didn't answer the question about the so, yeah, Fritz Lieber did, thing, though. It didn't so answer it never, the, the question yeah. we wanted to know. <laughs> right. Come on. Come on, Apple. Get this, Get it right. Um, uh, uh, so in addition to being uh, like a professor, he, he is studying, again, the effect of uh, logic versus ra- reason versus, versus uh, uh, you know, superstition. Um, and there's a reason Paula has these beliefs, and it's because... Uh, she was actually raised on a what seems to be kind of a Pacific island. Um, the the people there seem to be again with it's 1944, so there's a little bit of hodgepodgeiness happening. Um, they seem to be sort of Maori esque in their beliefs, almost almost Hawaiian island uh, yeah. style uh, folks. Um, some of the some of the words and the 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 names of things which sound slightly you know obviously made up um like the, the do come of the... off sounding a little bit like yeah they they'd be either either Hawaii or Cook Islands yeah. maybe uh, I think where, where name, a lot of the names she says are like the god or you know praying to the god of Kuana Ana Ana <laughs> yeah yes very, exactly it, very, it, it, sounds, it sounds very sounds much like, like some, something island. yeah yeah you you'd, you'd hear it in, in in Hawaii and stuff yeah so so we'll just call it that and within that it's 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 actually better than a lot of it's it's better than Mad Doctor of Marcus Street. We'll just say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> way better. It's it's better than King Kong too. First of all, where they, they should have been Pacific Islanders, and somehow they're all African Americans. Um, um. So then, so what we have is a flashback to this island, and there's a native ceremony going on, and there's dancers and and everything you'd kind of expect from that, and it it it, it does it does come off a little bit like someone had been to a luau at some point in, in Hawaii and gone like, Hey, you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they are basically Getting doing, doing, uh, uh, Lua dancing. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you, you see, uh, and Gwen kind of do a little, like a, it's almost like a hula dance there, which is very nice to see. <laughs> Hers, yeah, yeah. Hers is a little bit more like a, like a jitterbug version of yeah. it. But yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so what, um, uh, and, and, you know, this, this ceremony is going on next to this idol. Um, Cheney, uh, uh, Nor- the Norman character is, is here in his pith helmet and his whatever. So he, he goes into the jungle in, in strange confession too, doesn't he? This is the second one of these. Well, I guess this would be the first one of these movies that did he, we, we, we have his character going off into the islands to discover things, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's cause in strange confession, he's sent there. Um, to research and oh and right test to research the drug a, a that's right drug yeah I don't know if it's mold I'm, I'm getting that confused with House of Dracula but, it, it's some, it's some, um, yeah exactly it's something like that yeah but yeah and then and then this one I guess he's just researching you know for his his book or or thesis or what have you and in, in the South Seas or wherever right. they they claim that he's he's at they they claim to be yeah uh, yeah it's like Universal's like look we got a pith helmet it only fits Lon Chaney Jr. so please write something like that in there so we can put it <laughs> yeah. on. you know what I mean it's like get our money's worth it's too <laughs> too big it's too for, big for else, John yeah. Carradine <laughs> it's <laughs> it, it falls down on <laughs> on Lionel Adwell so please you know um uh 
the 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 norm norman uh the reed norman reed character is here and he's and he's doing some research and uh, apparently for his book on superstition and and reason um watching the ceremony he's kind of interested he decides to to and he see you're right he he does see Paula standing there and Paula obviously stands out quite a bit because Paula is not a Pacific Islander she is she's she's very pale and she has either blonde or red hair and and you know obviously like European features and everything because Anne Gwynn obviously was a person of European descent so so he he notices her right away and but we what we find out is and this cracks me up is that they meet and he knows her be, and he knows her because he was kind of a student or a, or a fan at least of her father who was a professor right yes yeah and her, yeah, and her and, father died yeah so and it it, it does make you wonder because you know I, I think in, in real life and Gwyn and Lon Chaney are you know Chaney's probably got 10 years or less on her in terms There's of a, age but um yeah. you know it makes you wonder at least in the characters from the movies because she's like oh you knew you knew my father and and it there is interesting in this movie probably more than any other inner sanctum like any female character is, is like fawning and, and instantly knows whoever Norman Reed is, you know, like he goes, Oh, yes. uh, I, I'm Norman Reed. And you see, and, and, or you see Paula, you know, like light up. Oh, you, you're Norman Reed. And then, you know, <laughs> she's heard about him here in this Island. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but I guess she knows him because she, she does remember him from her childhood when, and when he met her father and, um, and she was just, he remembered, he said she was like a little, a little, redhead girl with with freckles or something like that and um and you know and but my point is <laughs> here we have an archaeologist who was friends with another scientist who died and now he's going to become the romantic partner of that scientist's daughter and if that sounds familiar then it's because that's indiana jones and marion and <laughs> yeah. the lost ark it's, <laughs> yeah. it's oddly similar um uh, just like it's funny. I don't know. I don't know if this is a common practice in archaeology. Archaeology that you you marry the the daughter of your, the your daughter mentor, of, yeah. your, of your mentor, yeah. right? It seems a little. It seems a little incestuous. I'm just going to say it, but it's okay. Um, and and you also have that slightly skeegy thing where again, where obviously if you go back and you do the math about Indiana Jones and Marion when they had their relationship, you're like, hang on a second. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure she was 18. This this seems a little sketchy. Um. Anyway, it was it was the forties, I guess. I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> um, there's a bit of an issue because uh, there, Paula is standing on one side of a line of shells on the ground, and that line demarcates a certain sacred space. And if you cross over that line, then you are uh, going to be a sacrifice to the god. And Cheney almost steps, or Norman, I should say, almost steps over it. She stops him and explains it to him, and then he kind of instantly forgets and steps over it again. Yeah, I know. And gets, he gets jumped yeah. by all the dudes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, and, and, and you, again, you know, this is pointing out that this was made, you know, 80 or I guess, yeah, 80 some years ago. Um, and it was just probably more accepted, more commonplace back in 1944. But, you know, he's, he's on their Island and, and he's just kind of, watching yeah. and observing their their own rituals that have obviously have got some you know some tradition in them you know they've been rooted in yeah. however many years and then he they're, he, they're he instantly yeah. like just 
kind of craps all over it when she explains, oh, right, you, you know, right. you can't cross the line. He's like, oh, that's, you know, he's like, you expect yeah. him to say, oh, Boulder Dash, silly. yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And you're surrounded by these people for whom this this is very important to them. Yeah, of course. It's he's it's like the Kool-Aid man just busting through the wall of your <laughs> yes. house again. You know, I mean, it's, it's constantly like this in these films. It's so funny. Um, he So, again, he... Uh, and they have this conversation about the star falling, the shooting star, and she explains like its importance to him. And what he realizes that, is that she, while being a white woman, um, is fully enmeshed in the beliefs of this culture because when her father died, um, uh, Laura, Larua, oh, I think it's pronounced Larua. Um, I'll just say Larua. Um, who's who's the one? An older lady in the tribe raised her. She became her her nanny um uh and and took care of her so she's been raised with the beliefs of this tribe so while you know again she 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 bridges two cultures right she's 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 of one type of descent or whatever so it turns into it's rather like the jungle book or it's rather like dances with wolves or something like that it's 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 a person caught between two different worlds um he decides the best thing for her obviously is to well i'm getting ahead of myself is, is to marry her and bring her back to to the you know, the United States, somehow that's going to be, you know, good for her. Um, I guess him thinking is like where she belongs, but, uh, but there is obviously some affection. Room. In the meantime, he does, he steps, he, he manages to step over the, the line and he gets sort of beat down by a bunch of the, the native uh, tribal members and has to be taken to a hut and, and uh, taken care of by Paula and by Laura. Um, and they they create what uh, it's called a they they call it a, like a circle of protection or something right yeah around him Which yeah is, it's kind of a that, and that, that circle theme, of immunity yeah yeah that theme of the you know you you're inside this circle of immunity and nothing bad can happen to you is is fairly yes. pivotal <laughs> later on yes <laughs> yes exactly um, uh, I have my note here where uh, Larula is played by. We're going to have to cut this bit out. Okay, sorry. Okay, here we go. <laughs> LaRue is played by a woman named Hana Kappa. Uh, that's according to IMDb and and, uh, and and other sources. This apparently is her only film she was in. I don't know anything about her. There's I, I searched online. There's no information about her. She definitely is a person of, it looks like Pacific Islander uh, origin, possibly, or possibly yes. some, somewhere else. But, but her name sounds Pacific Islander or Hawaiian. Um, I don't know if she was a model, a dancer, uh, whatever. I mean, she's a woman of a certain age at this point when she does this movie. But I would personally love to learn more about this lady because she comes in and she, she owns these scenes when she's in them. She says, says a few lines and she's completely, you can tell she's not an actor, but she's totally authentic at the same time. It's, it's, she's, she's just so cool. I, w- I wish she'd been in a lot more things. I think she would, like a Noble Johnson or someone, like it would have been really interesting. Yeah, almost like um like a Maria Uspinskaya type, you know, where you're Yes, she, yes, she is kind of yeah. So much so much credibility just based on <laughs> delivery and looks, yeah. and, you know. <laughs> yeah, she's she's just authentic. I I don't know if she's really totally playing a character as as much as I don't know if she's totally playing a character as much as she is um uh channeling, you know, you know, uh, uh a lot of her forebears or or what have you. Um and and really selling the the authenticity of it. Um uh, so again, uh, following this whole bit of a debacle, um, again, again, we're still in flashback world. Uh, 
we kind of keep cutting back to to Norman in, in this in the same evening where his wife has come home and he's discovered she's been outside and he's discovered like tracks muddy tracks on the on the ground and stuff on the stairs. Um, and I have to point we, out we're too, back this, the the yes. the whole all, all of the scenes of Norman kind of as he's talking to himself or not talking to himself but thinking to himself and he's he's going back and forth bet- between the flashbacks and and you know kind of investigating yeah. about Paula it's so wonderfully lit it is such such a moody you know scene or setup you know that really kind of sets yeah. sets the stage for for the movie but it's just i don't know if it's just the the blu-ray restoration or or what but i mean the the way that he's dressed with the the very dim lighting and you know just smoking the cigarette and all that stuff you know he's in it's, his robe and his yeah, yeah. it's so well done yeah. it's moody and as opposed to when this next scene like i said when he brings paula home from the islands and and they've been married and he's going to introduce her to the college like society here um you know those two scenes are lit totally differently and i i guess i guess it's easy to like think that's obvious that you would you would light a nighttime scene differently than a than a than an evening scene at a party. Obviously, he's got just a desk lamp on or whatever and whatever. But those two things are also creating mood too. Like the one is the lighting is telling you something. The lighting is telling you that this is something intense happening here when he's at his desk and remembering about the islands. And then the lighting is telling you something different about what happens when he's at the party with with her or in his office at the college or what have you. You know, it's it's a Lighting has to be practical, but it has to be subjective too. It's it walks a very interesting line, and it has to it has to pretend it's not there too. We, have, you know that that little lamp yeah, that he's using <laughs> at the desk there is not lighting that scene. There's all these other lights lighting that scene, but you're having to sell the idea that you know the the, the famous lamp. line is yeah. Uh, yeah the famous line is someone asks where where the where the lights coming from in a certain scene in a movie, and the answer is the same place as the music. <laughs> right the orchestra bit <laughs> yeah yeah um ah so uh norman brings uh, her back to america he's, he's married her and he's also finished his book that he i guess he was researching while he was on the islands and i i can only, i mean i guess the assumption is that he probably spent a little bit of time recuperating on the islands and and with paula long enough for them to obviously fall in love and obviously to to uh, <laughs> finish writing his his book <laughs> I mean, I know, I, he must have had his typewriter with him, his Smith Corona with him, or something. Yeah, I, I I chuckle because the way that that Norman, so it, it's clear. I mean, you know, for whatever reason, and I'm assuming this is included into the screenplay to appease Cheney's desires and wants to be the the romantic leading man type. But it, it's it's so it's almost you know naked gun-esque the way that er- literally every female character under the age of you know 40 is just like madly in love with him and so was, the way that i mean he, really the, his always problems in this movie are based on the fact that every single woman wants him yeah <laughs> but the way that he but comes you know, in to this party and, and he just like announces he goes well every, well folks this is my wife and you know you he gets uh this real negative reaction from Evelyn Anker's character and, and uh, yes. Alona, and she's kind of questions him like, dude, you know, like what the, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I was interested right. in you and, and he's basically, he goes, well, it didn't mean much. I fell in love with her and married her and that's just the way it is. <laughs> I'm like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's where maybe some of the dialogue kind of fails us a tiny bit. Um, <laughs> and some of the plotting possibly. Um, it is very abrupt and, and it's like he's somehow managed to come back 
from his trip and no one's found out this that he's brought a, a woman with him and b that they <laughs> yeah wed um but it's it's a triumphant return though he's like he's back from this expedition and he's published this book and everyone's saying this book's going to be incredible and everything like that so it's a it's one of those things where he walks in. It's a big day for for Norman. It's a big night. You know, it's he's back in society. He's not wearing a pith helmet. He's wearing a suit. You know, and, <laughs> yeah, and he's got this beautiful wife, young wife with him. Beautiful young wife with him, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, from here on, we're I don't know if we're we're probably thirty minutes into the film, maybe maybe twenty five. Um, the rest of the film is kind of has a lot to do with the, the petty politics of education. <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> of does. Of college, you know? <laughs> like, like, like the, the, the jealousies of academia, not only uh, relationship-wise, but profession-wise, like status, you know, career, advancement, and all these things. So a lot of what... I'm trying to say... Um, it, it, envy really is the villain in this film, and it, it's what drives Alona... Um, and it's what drives Evelyn Sautel. It's it's kind of what drives um, uh, 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 Millard Sautel too. So um, basically, there, there's two things going on at, that that follows through the rest of the film. It's that Alona, uh, Evelyn Anker's character, was in love with with uh, with Norman, and it seems like they had a bit of a. He calls it a flirtation. Uh, you assume they had a tiny bit of a romance, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah. It, honestly, I mean, it sounds just like you know. He, he obviously was was single at some point, and so was she, and and yeah, they they yeah. had a night or two together, and and she yeah. had feelings, and he did not, and which is why right, he was right. he was he was fairly cold, you know, when they were mixing the drinks and stuff together, and and you know she's yeah doesn't she the character is someone who does not take rejection well. And you know most people. Yeah, it does not seem like she's used situation. to being rejected. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of so the genesis yeah. for everything else that happens. Yeah, yeah. We don't know how serious it was. I mean, I mean, if we're talking, ba- who did they make it past second base? Who knows? Like, I have no idea what the <laughs> what the you know, what what um meaning is couched in. It was a, just a flirtation, right? For the 1940s censors, who, who knows? Um. Because it seems like more than like they went on a day or two. It seems like she she really was expecting that they were going to get married. It was like you know on a track to somewhere. Um, Ilona apparently runs or is in charge of the the school, the, the university's library. That's her position within this this culture. Um, again, Norman is a professor. He meets another professor, or, or is reintroduced, I think, or I don't know, to another professor named uh, Miller Sautel, who's played. By Ralph Morgan, who who the other main Universal movie we've talked about these in was Night Monster. Um, yeah, uh, playing a very different character here. He's playing he's he's a guy who <laughs> I'm not going to say, but I was I will say my mom would have would have called him henpecked <laughs> by his wife. <laughs> yes, um, it's my mom saying it. If you have a problem with that, you have a problem with my mom. I'm just saying it. Um, no, he. Um, uh, uh, Evelyn Sautel, his wife, is the the climber in the couple. She's the ambitious one, and there is a position open. We find very quickly out there's a position open for the head of a department, the sociology department, I think. And Evelyn thinks her husband Millard should get that job. He's he has seniority. He has um, you know whatever, and he's uh, also written a book that uh, she's bragging about in the face of, of, you know, everyone talking about Norman's book. Um, 
that the cheese talking about how important his book is and we find out more about that book later on but but for all these reasons she thinks he should get this um uh position as as the the head of the department um having a wife who works in academia i will tell you that these decisions are rarely made based on logic <laughs> so <laughs> yeah so it's it's not it's not real there, there it's a lot of personal bias so there's I'm not sure Miller's uh, uh, chances of, of getting this job ever were were for sure anyway, uh, depending on her. Um, but what I like is like, you know, Norman's character, you know, she's like, well, I think I think my husband Miller's going to get this this position. And Norman's like, good, he should get it. Look, at, yeah. at no point is Norman actually after this this job. Norman's, again, it, almost kind of like Strange Confession. Norman's like, the, his character in Strange, Strange character in Strange Confession, I should say, um, Norman's very obsessed with his work and 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 the the in, the intrinsic value of his work. Right, he's not about status or wealth or anything like that. Really, yeah, exactly. That gentle Cheney character again that we talk about all yeah. the time, like almost mm-hmm. like the Lenny character. Yeah, yeah, and he's like I think just with the well, Paula's removed, so Paula's only I, I think want or desire throughout the whole movie is to protect her husband. But apart yes. apart from that, everybody else, all the other characters are very much involved in the school and like you said, in the politics and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and all that stuff. And Norman is the only one <laughs> out of that bunch. That's just like, you know, I don't really need this. I don't really want this. You know, your book is great. You, you deserve this. You've you know put your time in. And so it's, it's yeah. interesting that, that Norman's care or Cheney's character of Norman is, is, is separate from all that. He has no ambitions politically to, to ascend to any type of position of power or anything like that, whereas everybody yeah. else does. Yeah, yeah, and you like him because that he's above this kind of tawdriness, yeah. right? Yeah, um, and so it makes him a, a, a you know whatever you know. Speaking kind of, of character of, and of you know tawdriness, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure, and I'm jumping ahead, you know, in the movie a little bit, but um, I'm not sure of very many movies from this time especially b movies that were you know very quickly made and produced that would kind of touch on the the topic of you know college professor uh potentially having a relationship with the much younger starry-eyed student you know <laughs> no and, no no it's it's an interesting uh bit where they they really um address i mean how do i say this like i mean Unless you're talking about like like a Marx Brothers movie where Harpo and Chico are, <laughs> yeah. are after the students, where it's obvious they're obviously adults and they're after you know college age girls, and it's it's just funny. I mean, it's intended to be funny, obviously. Like, you know, um, this this we we get into this, uh, and I was going to talk about this a little bit. Like there there's the moment where, um, so 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 to, to briefly whatever, um, Alona wants to become. Norman's assistant. She wants to move from the library to become an assistant, and she wants it to. She wants to be close to him. Um, but he's requested her, Alona's assistant, Margaret, this very young uh, uh, girl played by actress Louise uh, Lois Collier, mm-hmm. um, to be his assistant, without realizing that Lois, that the young Margaret is is absolutely Infatuated, obsessed with him. Yeah. Not even beyond beyond Alona's kind of you know romantic, uh, uh, you know whatever attraction to him. Um, Margaret worships this this Norman guy. Yes, for, you know I don't. She worked for him briefly or before, and and obviously she she's fallen for him. And she's a younger woman and younger person, and and you know passions are more intense. And and 
she has this almost like childlike, you know, obsession with him that that gets dark when he rebuffs her and yeah. you know, she really goes for him at one point later on in the film and he rebuffs her and she goes and she she basically files a sexual harassment complaint against her. Yeah. Him that, yeah. that said, you know, says says that he tried to take advantage of her. And in maybe not the film's finest moment, the the there's a there's another older lady um who who I haven't made a note of what her character's name is, but it, but she kind of factors in, into the story here and there and stuff. And she she sort of visits Norman and says, remember like, well, Margaret said you made advances of her. What's your side of the story? And he's like, well, she's just crazy. And the lady's like, oh, that's good enough for me. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Just instant, <laughs> instantly refutes this woman's testimony based on an older man, an older established man said it was, it was nonsense uh, because it's 1944 and you know, well, that's how things it, went, I guess. It, unfortunately, um, it kind of it happened well beyond 1944 too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- ex- exactly. I was going to say like it, it'd be nice if that kind of thing didn't happen anymore, and we could just totally laugh at it. Unfortunately, which <laughs> is not yeah. totally the the case. Um, but again, it goes to this thing where I did make a, make a note on my thing that that said every girl on this campus has the hots for Lon Chaney. It's it's that's what happens when he wears the mustache, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, it's, it must be the mustache, right? And the wig, right? Yeah. <laughs> the two, he's just got that thing. It's those broad shoulders. Um you know, he's 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 I mean Chaney's looking pretty good at this point. He's got that little bit of extra padding that he got more in the forties than, you know, before, but but you know, hey, um uh um Right. So so here's the here's the thing is 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 what really propels the story is is this idea that that Alona will not let go of this and her um unrequited affection to him. And he does you're right. He does he kind of just says like, "Oh, let it go." It, no, it was just a flirtation. It wasn't a matter. Which makes you think it maybe wasn't that big a deal for Norman, right? It it just Yeah. Because I don't get the he, sense he that, didn't think much of it. Exactly. You don't get the sense that Norman himself was necessarily using somebody or or just you know kind of intentionally leading anybody on but and i right, think right. and that could be another reason why they they make it such a point that that to show that literally every woman uh, you know around is is just infatuated with this man and, and he is kind of yes. oblivious to that um which is why he's you know just like you know it is what it is you know just move on let's just be friends you know there's no reason why we can't just yeah, get you, along you, you, you get that yeah but again, back to the thing I was saying, like, he's also a man who's very obsessed with his work. And, you know, other things take, as as somebody who's kind of, you know, into his work too, like, sometimes other things do sort of take a backseat that shouldn't, or, you know, that you, you, you would, you should make more time for other things of your life. And then you get the feeling that Norman was just, you know, Norman was getting ready to go to the South Seas or wherever and, and do his research and, and you know, that's where his mind was. And then Alona's mind was on like, you know, a house and kids and, and everything else. I don't know. And, and does that play to some of the stereotypes of the period? Yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, but what I do think we get, we get in this film, I mean, if, if, if there's anything there, I think that really stands out about this film that really like I enjoy about it. It's seeing Evelyn Anchors play ostensibly the villain, which is great. Yes. We so rarely, almost, almost never get a character like that within a movie like of this, of this era. It's great. And she's not like a mad scientist. She's not deformed. She's beautiful. She's glamorous. She's everything. Right. But, but he even says at one point, he's like, you're insane. Like 
like there's some there's absolutely something wrong with Alona for sure. Like it's not just that she's a jilted lover. It it's the the jilting woke up something that's not right about this woman and and she's willing to go to any lengths to punish both Norman and Paula for what she feels I think she just feels like they but they betrayed her and she's the source of the betrayal and and yeah. So something really clicks with her. It's really ugly. It's it's very interesting to watch. It is. And when I was reading on on this movie, you know, before we start recording, I think that well, I don't think, but I know that um Anne Gwynn and Evelyn Anchors were really, really close friends. Um in fact I think that Anne Gwynn had had been her her basically her reference for when uh, Evelyn Anchors uh, became a citizen of the United States and and they had a very, very close friendship and, and lasted I think all the way up until uh, Anchors oh. passed away. But um, th- I know Re- Reginald LeBorg in an interview had said that, you know, Evelyn Anchors was, was a great, great actress, a very, such a sweetheart, but had such a hard time during the scenes where she had to be kind of cold and callous and mean to Anne Gwynn just because she loved her so much. It just didn't come off oh, as like authentic. So they had to kind of work with her to get her to <laughs> get, to, get that chill there. Yeah. yeah. But she did it. That's I mean, she she does a great job. I think you know. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. So we'll we'll get to it before I spoil the entire ending. But <laughs> right, right. Where where was Evelyn Anchors from originally? She became a citizen. Uh, England, I believe. Oh, she's Eng- She's mm-hmm. English, really. Mm-hmm. She has that mid Atlantic thing that makes you think like she could be from anywhere. That's really interesting. She really didn't have a strong. Yeah, I think she. I mean, she even especially in in the Wolfman, which is the first thing I know her from, her accent's not very pronounced. That's really interesting. Yeah, no, that, and that was I think kind of a, a bit ironic to her, is because I know she worked very very hard to get rid of the English accent and right. to sound more American. And I think by right. the time uh, she, that would make sense. By the time she mastered it, you know, they stuck her as a as an English, <laughs> as a Welsh woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> in the Wolfman, in, in, in Wolfman, like. <laughs> Larry. Yeah. <laughs> it's not Larry. It's Larry. Yeah. Um, that's really funny. Um, but I think the casting in this movie really does work too. Cause you know, Evelyn anchors at this, it's 1944 and she is not 20 years old. She's, I don't know how old she is at this point. You might Olivia, You'll probably do the math. Um, but she's, she's just enough older than Paula and obviously wiser in the ways of how, this society that they're in works here and at the college and in the United States that she, she's manipulative and she can, she, she's a step ahead. We always talk about villains being a step ahead. Um, Paula is, is to not her, not any of to any of her fault. She's kind of clueless because she hasn't been raised in this kind of culture. She hasn't been raised in, in a world where people, someone will say one thing to you, but they're actually thinking something different or where someone has an ulterior motive or they're being, yeah, you know, like I said, duplicitous or treacherous, even you know. Um, I don't think she she's not accustomed to dealing with people who 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 don't want any good for her, who who actually mean her harm, and and she becomes very aware of it though, because and and in so doing has to start doing the the spells, which is how we get into the you know kind of the 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 the, the thing that the that the the plot of the film turns on. Um, um, again, Norman's book. Superstition versus reason, in fact, is it's a big hit, and so he's kind of a big deal now. Um, and there's this talk about him getting the the uh, the the head of the department, uh, yeah, 
uh, job instead of of Miller Sautel. And Alona's sort of campaign against Norman and Paulus begins with her kind of whispering poison in Evelyn Sautel's ear. Um, um, and and getting into this idea of she talks about how Paula has this history of like of superstition and magic, and she uses the word witchcraft finally. So yeah. what we get into is this kind of like, you know, what what have you, New England or Midwest or wherever Monroe College is set. Um, it plays into this idea of like, if, if you're talking about a, a small kind of ensconced culture that, that, that turns on someone and, and accuses them of witchcraft as a way to like root them out and see them as the other and persecute them, then we're not too far away from Salem or anything like that. It, you know, the story really pivots on that kind of a, a thing happening to somebody outside of a culture and like, wow, like you're like, no, I, I could see like everyone turns against her. You know, it, that that's how, that's what she uses. Yeah. And also I want to take a minute to just kind of shout out and appreciate Elizabeth Russell because she's the way that she um, emotes very silently just from her facial expressions, especially her eyes. It's fantastic. I mean, she, mm. she could look scared. She can look at just like the coldest, most mean spirited person you, you know, you'd ever see. She is just, she is great. terrifying in this. Movie. Yes. <laughs> she is. So she's lovely. Her face is, is, is so uniquely shaped and she's got these eyes and stuff. She reminds me of, if I'm making a current thing, she reminds me of Ever Carradine in uh, The Handmaid's Tale, if anybody's been watching The Handmaid's Tale. Um, she's got this lovely face that is, but that's drawn and that, that can, that can in an instant look like a different face. And, and I think a lot of that is, is, is Laborg and, 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 and the direction and the lighting and stuff. But um, yeah, she's kind of almost a standout in this film. And I don't know her from, much else at all, except like I said, she was in uh, she's in Bedlam, which we're going to be talking about at some point. And, Corpse and I haven't watched The Corpse Vanishes in a while. I can't yeah. wait. Is Corpse Vanishes the one with the the small person and Lugosi? I think I believe it so. is. Yeah, I, I have not seen that in probably since I was a kid. To be honest with you, was it a was it a serial or a movie? And I think it was. It wasn't it one of the monogram movie. movies. Yeah, I, I have I'm I have maybe somewhere I have, on, sure. I have it on DVD up on my shelf there, but it's, it's in the back. I haven't watched it in a bit, and it's a pretty poor uh, copy that I have, so I'm gonna have to check it out. Um, I, I know there's not a monkey in it. That's another one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's my that's how I break down my collection: movies with monkeys, movies without monkeys. Um, and guess which much larger guess which section is bigger? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so so Evelyn has. Uh, or not Evelyn, Alona, uh, has begun her, her kind of campaign, um, having figured out about Paula and, and Paul's to this, what this society would, would call like a, you know, questionable history. Um, the, the next step is where she actually brings Millard Sautel into her office. Um, and, and as being in charge of the library as she is, um, Miller, or, uh, uh, she's, she uses a she she makes up something I think because I I think with the understanding is Nor, Norman doesn't actually do this but she says Norman has requested to uh, this thesis written by a student who died a bunch of years ago, um, so the the thesis that he wrote is sort of lost in in the files of the of the library but supposedly Norman has requested it 
Alona shows it to Millard, and what we find out is, is Millard basically plagiarized yeah. this thesis as the basis of his book. And it's a again, it's a thesis of a dead of someone who's dead, who's who's you know, no one knows much about it, but he did it, and he did it because again, like he's not that ambitious. His wife Evelyn is pushing him to get this deanship or whatever it is, and to do that, uh, you know, publishing within this culture is 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 important. So, you know, she's she's uh, pressured him in in that way to to do something. So, out of desperation, he basically just just cribbed off of this poor dead kid's writing uh, to create his own his own book. Very, I think, very quickly because he was kind of stalling on it. Um, uh, Evel- Alona, I'm I'm getting I'm going to keep mixing up because it's Evelyn Anchors. But then there's another character there's in the Evelyn film Sattel. named Evelyn. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, yeah, Evelyn Sautel. So I'm going to keep um, Alona. Uh, kind of is using it, and and she's putting the pressure on him, saying like, "I'm going to not give this to Norman. I'm like, I'm your friend, you know. Da, da, da. Um, I'm not going to give this to show to Norman, but like, you need to figure this out because this is this is maybe going to come out and whatever. Um, so it, I mean. She's manipulative and diabolical, and like, what does she, what does she think is going to happen? I mean, we we know what happens in the as a result of her doing this, but I don't know what Alona's plan for for this is, except to just cause chaos or something. But yeah, because but it has that's a good point. Cause go ahead. This doesn't necessarily. So you know, you kind of get the impression, considering that you know she she sees that Norman is now married to someone that's not her. And that seems yeah. to be the genesis of her of her anger and her right. trying to go after Norman and Paula. But you wonder why why involve Millard in this? Um, it, with I guess the only plausible, in my mind, anyways, only plausible explanation is to try to frame Norman for um, murder or something like that but th- but that also doesn't necessarily right. make sense because norman's not the one that plagiarized or really did anything wrong <laughs> yes exactly so so i mean pa- while, while it advances the plot in a way it's hard to figure out if if the character of alona's plan was for miller to kill himself out of desperation when confronted with the you know the the possibility of him being disgraced because he says i'll be disgraced i won't work i'll get i'll be fired i won't work another college i'm I'm a plagiarist it's you know that's going to follow me forever so you know this poor man sees himself as who by the way like like, you know uh played by by ralph morgan who plays like pretty much a heavy in night monster it's it's it you know he plays this very meek gentle kind of soul and you know kind of tortured guy in, in this film, it's it neat to see that switch. Um, um, but out of desperation, uh, Miller Sautel does kill himself, and his wife Evelyn, who has again been been sort of you know poked and prodded and and pushed by by Alona's machinations, um, blames Paula because she's been told that Paula is a witch. So so. It does. It does have the the desired effect Alona wanted to, where it she's basically um, Norman and and Paula are, are starting to become like pariahs or being ostracized out of outside of this culture. Like you know, it's this thing where like if she can't if she can't have Norman, she she wants to see him destroyed, and maybe she thinks if he's desperate enough, he'll leave Paula and and come with her or something. But I I think that's just her psychopathy, right? I mean, that's just the you know, yeah, that's, that's the the. 
the workings of her kind of messed up brain. Yeah, it, it's it's ironic in a way because she's the one that ends up being very crazy, you know. It, yes, and she's, yes, she's yeah. trying to frame Paula as that person, you know. You, you're you're the one that's that's just you know witchcraft and right. and doing all the silly superstition yeah, stuff and yeah. and all your yeah. you know beliefs are what's causing all these problems and and all that stuff when it's quite the opposite. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, so, uh, again, we, 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 we go through the bit where, uh, we already talked about, 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 uh, young Margaret becoming, um, uh, Norman's assistant. Uh, young Margaret has a, has a boyfriend named David, this young student who apparently isn't that good a student or that serious a student. Um, um, and, since since Alona can't become Norman's assistant and Margaret, again another younger woman, right, be, get gets to be close to him. Yeah, <laughs> um, she decides the best thing to do is to is to start working on David, Margaret's jealous boyfriend, obviously jealous boyfriend, um, and pushing him and seeing seeing what happens with that and and talking to him about it, like, well, you know what happens, you know, girls and men working together late at night, all this thing, you know, you know. She never says anything outright as much. She just she just puts it out there and lets other people fill in the the gaps, which is you know it's good writing. It's really neat. It is, and and it I think probably in in her mind it gives her almost like an out, you know, to, to say you know, it, well, and okay, so here's we just talked about um, Tower of London a few episodes back and how yeah. Richard the Third would kind of have an idea. Right, and, but let the king and let let everyone else kind of fill in the blanks and actually be the ones to quote unquote execute it, even though he's the one yes. with the that kind of pushed them all to that. She's kind of doing the same thing here, you know. She, it, it, she it, exactly. She wants uh, David to go after Professor Norman and kind of pile on to this eventual accusation of sexual harassment and, and inappropriate, right, right. you know, behavior. And but she she never quite says that. She just plants the seeds and just kind of waters them and watches the grow. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. She's, she's the puppet master to, to use another analogy. Yeah, yes. exactly. Um, um, I have a note here that Ch- Cheney spends an inordinate amount of time in this film in his Jimmy jams, um, <laughs> which he does. He, do- he, he does. does seem to spend a lot of time in, in his pajamas and his house coat. Um, for sure. Um, what, what happens is he catches, um, Paula uh, going out again at night. Um, and he decides to follow her. And here's the scene where I talked about where he follows her down the street um, it, in the dead of night, he puts on his, I mean, he's actually puts on pants and a coat in this scene, I guess. Um, uh, again, where, where we saw her stinking before, he follows her through this graveyard, through a fence and everything. And he finds this kind of hollowed out tree where she has stashed all her, um, magical paraphernalia, right? It's, 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 it's all the, the totems and, uh, and little parts of, of, you know, little items that she uses to make these spells. And, you know, when he confronts her about it, she says, you know, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this to protect you because she knows Alona is is coming for them. She knows, like, that they have enemies. Um, and without even, uh, it's not like she's even inferred that logically. It It is like somewhere deep down, she just has this magical sense or something, under, you know, this super normal sense that that forces are, are aligned against Norman and her and that they need protection. So she's resorted to what she knows, this, this, um, 
you know, this traditional method of trying to pr- protect them both. And in doing that, he's, she's using, using her magic again. Um, Norman, of course, being this man of science again, like confronts her and says, this is all ridiculous. We have to like get yeah. you past this. This is just a sign that, you know, there, you know, there's something wrong with you. And we, and so, so again, like I said, it's this Western idea of that. And also this idea of like a man knows better than a woman. She's just a silly, yes. young, emotional girl. And he knows better because he's an old man from, you know, wherever, you know, um, I'm, I'm making a conscious point to not dismiss any of Paula's belief systems in this, because I don't, I just don't want to be the guy who does that. I don't want to be the the Norman in this thing. So, so if that's, if, if you guys are hearing like me kind of equivocating that, that is what I'm doing. Cause I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure what, who's right in this film, to be honest. I, I do think the film kind of leaves it open and says like, you know, there is, there is something to be said about this. So I, I just want to just not fill in that that blank myself um is sort of my my purpose in talking about this um, yeah because because norman obviously i mean and this is probably the one scene where you kind of you're not necessarily on on norman's side because he he's, no, he's yeah. kind of cruel in, in the way that he does this and i understand he's he's frustrated and, and in his mind i'm sure he's tried to be patient but you know just yeah. just the the notion or the thought i'm i'm gonna take this this woman out of her natural, not natural, but, but her, you know, native land out of right. her, what her, what the she's, she's believed raised, in yeah. Yeah, and raised all her life and basically tell her it's all crap. And then she just has to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. be domesticated and, and be, you know, my wife. But the way he like stomps on this stuff and, and yells at her and stuff like that, it, it's it, not a great yeah, look for, for Norman. It's, it's bothersome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I, I do think it's sort of typical of the era. Um, um, but but it it does come off like he has to discipline her, right? Exactly, and that just that just comes off that that that's that comes off kind of cringy, um, you know. Um, but it's true to his character. I mean, in in the defense of the film, it's this is who this guy is. This guy is a guy who absolutely believes in reason and logic and and you know science and, and whatnot. So you know, from his point of view, this is this is the worldview, and he's. I don't want to say stuck, but he's he's made this person his wife who whose whose belief systems fly in in the face of everything he believes in. So there, it's a complicated marriage, I guess is is the, the idea of it. Um. Uh. By the way, Anne Gwynn in this movie just looks amazing, and you know, and so oh, does Evelyn does. Anders and, <laughs> yeah. and 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 Elizabeth Russell too. I mean, it again, like I said, for it's a cheaper movie, but man, the the ladies are lit beautifully. Um. He, you know, you know, Cheney's lit interestingly like you know like you you have different lighting for women and and men usually in most movies um you you go with a little more contrast in men's face to kind of shape them and make make them a little more chiseled women's faces you you tend to front light a little bit more and and ease out any any bumps curves crevices wrinkles what have you (laughs) as someone who sat around on set for you know a certain amount of time waiting for the lighting to get right on an actress yeah exactly um you spend the time doing that because you want everyone to look their best um norman uh burns all of paula's religious items including um there's this necklace that she she wears this totem thing uh, around her neck that's a, a a thing of protection that you know um uh alona notices right away uh when she shows up and and they burn that and you know again we have this whole idea of like uh of in throwing the thing in the fire it it bursts and it kind of like 
something kind of odd or out of the normal happens and and you could write it off to like well maybe it's made of some weird metal or maybe it had something in it or something that when it got heated you know kind of burst but this is the moment i think where you see even um even norman goes like hang on a second right yes <laughs> it, it's the, and, and it's and then it's right after that that they hear the gunshot and he goes across and fi- and they find um uh evelyn Sautel over the body of her husband who's who's shot himself and evelyn Sautel instantly blames paula and says it was or no she blames norman i should say that norman drove him to this and norman's just like what are you talking about? you know I yeah, mean, he has this, no clue yeah yeah just this just this thing um uh the you know the with with millard gone now there's this idea that that norman's gonna move into the into this this position of you know this, this head of department position um norman doesn't even again like i said norman doesn't even want this position he's just you know you know he he but but mostly i guess what this final part of the film focuses on is is, is it's it, Norman does kind of Cheney's character does kind of more move to a little bit of the front of the movie, and it starts becoming about his gradual questioning of everything he believes. Yes, um, you know, it, it, up until now, it's been this struggle to like maintain his faith in in science and reason and logic and whatever. Um, and now, as 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 basically more and more odd things start happening, um. Uh, uh, after after he destroys all her magical items, yeah. um, which he starts he he does he starts questioning it. Yeah, and in, in a way, it's it's it, not that you know all of the manipulation and and the deaths and everything that um, that Alona has caused is is right because it's not. But for Cheney to mm-hmm. to suddenly be this, you know, everything that he's he's known and he's believed in has now suddenly come into question. Yeah, so yeah. Cheney, I mean Norman. You know, to no, where, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, he he thinks like he just told his Paula. You know, this is just this is child stuff. This is silly superstition. It's it's stupid. And and now yeah. after he's done that, suddenly all these things are happening. Now his own foundation is shaking. You know, so he he's exactly. experiencing a little yeah. bit of what Paula has been <laughs> throughout half the Predicting. movie. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, the things that she's saying are starting to come true. And so, so again, yeah. Um, um, he has a line here where he says, you, you can't be surrounded by fear and not be infected, which I think is like a pretty good line. There's some really good lines in this. I like the one um, that, that Margaret says to, to David where she's like, she's like, you know, some, I have it written down. Um, be, being around a man like Norman makes some sophomores seem pretty sophomoric. Which I think it's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty. That's a nice piece of pulpy writing. I like yeah. that. Um, so here we have the moment where uh, we were talking about earlier, where um, uh, Norman has Margaret in his office later at night, and he's dictating uh, to her, and she's <laughs> she's actually not even taking notes about yeah. what he's saying. She's <laughs> just staring at him with these doe eyes, which is pretty. Like you wonder if Margaret's altogether there actually, because there's something off about how blatantly obsessed with with it, yeah. it, well, she it, has it, it sort of stretches <laughs> credulity right yeah i don't know 
Um, it's it's funny, but I, to him, it's it's not just like a romantic thing. I think she he's a superstar to her. He's like a celebrity to her, and so she actually has this. It, like we said before, I think it's like this hero worship kind of thing happening, where it's like if you were suddenly around someone ultra ultra famous in her world, that's he's like a movie star. Or he's like whatever you know. Um, uh, here's where she she sort of she sort of makes a pass at him. She sort of you know I, I and again like Alona like assuming it's it's reciprocal. And it's not, and and I guess if Norman does have a real flaw, it is he's actually not very good at handling a situation. No, you think he'd be used to it with every woman being obsessed with him, <laughs> yeah. but he's terrible. He's like, what? He's like, what are you doing? Get off me! What are you doing? You know, he's he's not he's not gentle about it ever. He's he's kind of a brute about. He about is, you know, letting someone down easy, right? He's just like get. You silly girl, get away from me! You know, like, what I mean, it's like, really, it's really kind of harsh. Yeah, I mean, like you just said, you know, at the the beginning of the movie, you know, he he surprises Alona, who's expecting him to come single. You know, like, oh, hey, this right. is my wife. By the way, our stuff was just a flirtation. This is how it is. Get over it. Let's just be friends. You know, <laughs> I mean, and, all, and he's a kind of like surprised that she doesn't take that very well. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, and, um, now there have been one or two moments, um. Where I, I, you notice in the film where um, Norman with with uh, with Margaret will like he'll touch her cheek or whoever like he 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 does he does do a few things that you're like okay well first of all now that that would get you fired yeah, yeah. <laughs> from most from most positions um, and second of all like it, it it I like it it's just enough that you could see that she she takes a harmless what he intends to be a harmless gesture of affection and takes it you know, to the nth degree, obviously, and yes. it makes, it makes the assumptions. So, yeah. So, um, again, you know, he's, he's upset about it. He, he dismisses her. She, she's hurt, goes and does the complaint. Meanwhile, Alona has been, again, whispering poison in, in, is it David or Dennis? David. In, yeah, in David, David, David's ear, in Uncle Owen's ear, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Before he had to deal with sand people. Um, this is what happens when you get uh, caught up in the inner sanctum. You go to another galaxy okay. far, far away. and <laughs> Far, far, deal, far away, yeah. Had to deal with battle droids. And <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, so Dennis Dennis goes, and it's one of my favorite, because there's no real, there's not a whole lot of like physical dynamic stuff that happens in the movie. Um, it is pretty much a like as we said, it's kind of an intellectual exercise of a, of a you know, kind of a thriller. Um what does happen while James Madison in the portrait is, is watching over, over everything in, in Norman's office. Um, David comes and he, and he tries to sucker punch Norman. And, and what's great is, is that, um, you know, Phil, Phil Brown, who would go on again to play Uncle Owen. Um, he's about a third of the size of Lon Chaney. <laughs> yeah, and and to, just to punch him, he has to reach up way high, try to hit him in the face. And, and Norman who, you know, I, I you know, he, yes, he's an academic, but he's also a world explorer, and you know, obviously, he seems like a capable guy, and and just physically just tosses him out of the door. <laughs> like Lon Chaney, again, it's one of those things where you're not sure how well choreographed this scene was, or if Lon Chaney was just going with it, and 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 Phil Brown just sort of <laughs> hoped hoped he had, hoped for well, a he soft live, landing. you know, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, because. Cheney really manhandles him. It's pretty funny. Um, it is. It, when I was uh, one of the the interviews that I was reading on um, before we started here was was an interview with Phil Brown, and he was talking about working oh, wow. working with Cheney, and and you know he gave the 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 same kind of anecdote 
anecdotes that you hear a lot about him, which was he was a nice guy. He was kind of crazy. You know, he, he gave me a glass of whiskey at 10 in the morning. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, he uh, they said that they were doing the the scene and um, the fight scene. And that when they had they'd gotten onto the, the floor and Cheney had ripped his jacket and uh, the director called cut and Cheney goes, don't worry about it, kid. I'll get you a new one. You know, we'll, just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of it. And I, I guess, I guess it was actually his, his own like personal jacket. <laughs> it wasn't a studio, oh, wow, weird. a studio thing. So they had to have someone sew it up. So it was just kind of interesting, kind of funny, you know, have a fight scene with Lon Chaney and get your jacket ripped. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I feel like that's just a badge of honor at some point. Maybe not at the time, but eventually you'd be like, I got I got my jacket ripped by launching. Um, so following that little fracas, uh, <laughs> he, uh, Norman comes home and finds and finds Paula there, and someone has been, I guess we would call it crank calling the house at this point, um, um, and playing. What sounds like honestly Hawaiian music, um, you know, na- native jungle drum stuff. You know, with with you know, honestly though, it it sounds pretty damn contemporary. It sounds it like does, yes, what what you would hear like on the radio at a luau or something like that. So yeah, anyway, um, it's not just drums. It's actually like, I think there's a guitar in there and stuff. So <laughs> you know, it's okay. Um, but they are they're they're psycholog- Someone is psychologically tormenting her, and, and we have a pretty good idea of who it is. But you know, um. Um, but it's pushing Paula, uh, who, who does, who again, like believes now that they are unprotected with, with all her totems and, and her, her magical items, uh, uh, gone. Um, it's, it's pushing her past this, you know, to this point of desperation and we start getting, uh, our, our sort of favorite version of Lon Chaney where he's starting to like fret and he's getting a little sweatier, and his hair is getting mussier. And you know, we have the 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 forlorn, yeah, um, troubled look uh, version of Cheney yeah. that, yeah, the troubled look that 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 Cheney does so well. Uh, he does he does consternation <laughs> so effectively, and we just you know we're so used to it from from him playing Lawrence Talbot, this this endlessly tormented character. Yeah, um, that, that you do half the time expect him to start changing. You know what I mean when he's this upset? <laughs> yeah. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm waiting for the effects to start. See, maybe, maybe there's rumors about that, and that's why all the uh, all the women seem to like him. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Knows? Well, you know, there there's again there's this thing there's this kind of tragic thing about Cheney, and you feel like there's something sympathetic about that. Like you you get the idea that someone would be attracted to to like this kind of like you know man or whatever. So so you know. Again, the phone rings. He tears it out of the the wall. He's he's so you know you know upset. Um. Uh, again, we and we have we have the the dean of ladies uh, shows up, and we have again that that aforementioned conversation where she's like, "Well, Margaret said you did this," and he's like, "No, I didn't do that," and she's like, "Well, that's good enough for me." Yeah, <laughs> 1944. Um, uh, so so he's off that, but but um, what what then happens though is is David Jennings, who's who's still convinced that he attacked. His, or he took advantage of his girl, um, and uh, who, uh, who's I think also embarrassed that he kind of got thrown out on his ass. Um, the, the the lady he talked Norman talks to suggests she go to the gym and work out, and and we see Cheney like hitting a speed bag a little bit, and then someone comes and tries to shoot him, and 
I mean, misses a couple times, apparently, and he turns and, and confronts, and it's David. And so David has gone and gone and gun, and he's going to kill Professor Norman Reed um, uh, as, you know, to, to get him out of the way and stuff. So, so he's, you know, and this is a direct result of, like, he's just been pushed by by Alona to this point where, yes. you know, you know, like, he's been... He's almost, I mean, you get the feeling he's kind of not, he's not all to- totally there to begin with, too. But you get the feeling that she's pushed him past that edge, too, where his his natural, very jealous nature, she's just, like, you know, cranked up to 11. Um, in the scuffle for the gun, uh, uh, Norman tries to defend himself and, and get the gun away from David. In the scuffle, David is shot with the gun, and Norman is is arrested on a charge of, of murder um, because there was no one else there. So it's kind of a, like a, he said, he said, you know, ex- except it's not, it's, it, it just seems like pos. I guess there's this idea that Norman went to the gym and then shot David, uh, you know, again, it's a little like, okay, well, you know, it's what it is. Um, but, uh, Norman is put in prison. Paul's home alone. And here we have that great scene you were talking about where, where Evelyn, you know, Sautel comes over and Elizabeth Russell gives this performance yes. where she's just calling her a murderer and a murderer and a murderer. And her hair is quaffed up perfectly. Her, her face is almost a perfect inverted triangle. She's got these thin lips and big eyes and stuff. She's such a unique looking lady. And she's, there's, there's only something witchy about looking about her. She's accusing Paul of being a witch, but there's something possessed and witchy about her. She's all in black for mourning, obviously, because her husband just shot himself and everything. But, um, yeah, it's really like, uh, it's, it's kind of chilling. Again, it's, it's just part of this psychological torment that, you know, she's, she's, you know, Paula is being pushed to the edge and Paula for, part is, you know, Paula doesn't have a malicious bone in her body and never, never does in the movie. No one, she, she never really, you know, for for the film being promo- being called Weird Woman and all the promotional images being uh, uh, Anne Gwyn dressed in what I'm pretty sure is the same sarong they wrapped Aquanetta in <laughs> yeah. for Jungle Woman promo photos. I'm pretty sure it's the same one. Um, first of all, she never really wears anything quite like that in the film. She only wears briefly. She has that like kind of a sarong thing on. Um, uh, the rest of the time she spends in normal, you know, American woman clothes um but there's nothing my point is there you know there's nothing dangerous or or even like aggressive about paula paul is really just this very sub submissive victim in 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 the whole film and and what's being done to her by alona is is really you know just it's it's she doesn't fight back i guess is what i'm babbling and trying to say (laughs) she doesn't i mean and and like you said you know with with um with Elizabeth Russell, you know, she, uh, I get the sense that, and I don't know a whole lot about her or her, or her career, you know, but yeah, um, she obviously, she knew what she had in terms of a unique look and, and kind of how to work, you know, her face yeah, and, yeah. and her expressions. And she used it to the, to the fullest extent because my gosh, is she chilling? <laughs> I mean, it's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's, it is something to see. And again, this is this is we're talking about lighting again. This is she's not lit the way she is at the beginning of the film. When she comes in and confronts her this way, and kind of in the rest of the film, where where Evelyn takes on a, a much more important role uh, in in the sting uh, section of this movie at the end here, um, um, 
they light her totally differently. They light her very eerie. They light her like a villain. It's it's really interesting, and she she still looks splendid. But but yeah, oh geez, um, she's I mean she's honestly a little scary. Like I would not want that woman in my house saying those things in my face. It'd be really freaky. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, she she's really telling Paula that like you need to leave. You need to go back to wherever you're from. You know, be away from this because you do nothing but bring harm here. You do nothing of this and stuff. Um. And this is a, it's a very inner sanctum moment where they're superimposing her face on all these masks that Norman has in his wall that Paul is looking at. You know, the masks keep going back and forth to becoming Evelyn and back and stuff. It's, it's, it's that psychological, you know, uh, 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 mix up thing that, that, uh, you know, it, that this, this series has its own, you know, whatever, um, identity. Uh, um, into, into this. So, so, so Norman has been re released from from uh uh prison um and and he comes back and he kind of catches evelyn in his house doing this to his wife and it's like what are you doing yeah <laughs> he's, he's like what? and she's and and evelyn says like you know it's your fault you you killed norman by by or you killed uh i should say uh uh, uh millard by asking for that that you know, piece of, of, you know, that he wrote, that he confessed to me, whatever. So, so first of all, I'm not sure how Evelyn thinks. I, I, in Evelyn, in her mind, I think has created this idea with some help from Alona that Norman was out to destroy her husband in order to get that, the position of the head of the department, which again, having a wife who works in academia, not, not the craziest belief. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to say it. It's plausible. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not, not, not implausible. Um, but she has created this idea again with help from Alona that, that this was a plot. And Norman stops her and goes like, I didn't even know, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know anything about that paper. I didn't know he, he plagiarized it. I, I had no knowledge of that. Who told you that? And there's this moment where Evelyn kind of breaks and she says, well, Alona was telling me all this. And he's like, it's a moment where finally, you know, you, you've known this all along as the viewer, but finally you're like, Norman catches up, Eve uh, Evelyn catches, everyone's like, hey, you know what? I think this has all been Alona. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yes, it has. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you've, been, you've been waiting for people to like, yeah, right? For Alona to sort of be found out. Um, but but the problem is like, there's no real proof. Alona is smart and clever and careful, and she really hasn't she hasn't done anything. Yeah, exactly. Talk. It, yeah, that's, like that's, that's her weapon, right? I yeah, mean, that's her, she, yeah, like yeah. I said, she she gets she's manipulated everybody else to to do these things that she she's just yes. smart enough to know how it's going to end up. You know, yeah. like like yeah. with um, with you know uh, David or Uncle Owen, you know, mm -hmm. convincing him <laughs> that that uh, Norman is is took an advantage of of his girlfriend yeah. and. And knowing how that would end up, and knowing the mm -hmm. potential fallout of that, but at the end of the day, right. she didn't pull the trigger. You know, no pun right. intended. She's not actually yeah. guilty of anything. Yeah. yeah, but but what what um, what they realize they've got to do. So, so so David, who tried to kill Norman and is now in the hospital in critical condition, um, uh, might live or he might die. If he dies, there's a good chance Norman is going to be. Um, actually convicted of murder. Um, so there's this, you know, noose hanging over his head in, in so to speak that, that he's got to find a way to clear his name. And to do that, he's got to, they realize he's, they've got to get Alona to admit that she was the one who put David up to 
you know, trying to basically trying to, to kill Norman. Um, so they've got to get Alona to admit it. So the end of the film, the last five or seven minutes is, is basically this, like I said, it's like a sting operation where Evelyn, who now has come into the fold and realizes that Alona is, is dangerous and, and has been kind of behind this whole thing. And, and honestly, Alona is the one who is responsible for her husband killing himself to some degree. Yes. I mean, I would say Evelyn. Evelyn bears a little bit of that responsibility too in in pushing the man to into into so hard that he did something he's ashamed of and risk ruining himself and then whatever. So anyway, the important thing is that she, Alona was the one who who introduced that that the old the dead kids you know uh, essay or whatever um, thesis. Um, and and you see in this moment where where Evelyn realizes it and the lighting on her totally changes now. And now she just looks yeah. like a, a woman. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's, I'm telling you, it's all acting and it's all lighting and, and camera work. And for like a smaller budget film, that's just, man. Yeah. It's just that it's so effective. It really, there's, there's nothing not that doesn't click about, um, we'll call it Evelyn's like transformation, you know, yeah, back into like the, a regular, the, a regular person. Yeah. The menace in her eyes is just gone. Yeah. You know, it's they're yeah. they've become soft again. You know, you don't. Yeah, again, again not fearful. And, and she's just a, she's just a, a woman who lost somebody who she cares yes. about. Yeah. Um, but what what she's going to be able to do is kind of channel that darkness again in this thing. So, what they figure out to do is that they have Evelyn invite Alona over, and they make up the story that that Evelyn's husband visited her like a ghost, and and has said a woman lied. And Evelyn is going to pretend that she doesn't know what's happening, but then that that he that the ghost of her husband showed her this doll, and then the doll was there. So they actually find um, they're going to call it they call it kind of a voodoo doll, basically. Um, obviously, voodoo is an a African and Carib faith that is based out of the Caribbean area of North you know, Central America. And what we're talking about is Polynesia and South Seas Islands. So calling it, calling it voodoo is, is a bit of a amalgamation that isn't really appropriate. So, but anyway, they find, they find a doll, like a a totem doll with nails driven into it and and whatnot. Like you do kind of, the doll itself does look like some of what you do see in, in uh, that part of the, the the South Sea part of the world, um, Cook Islands and stuff where, where a lot of tiki, uh, aesthetic kind of originated basically. Um, um, she shows her this, this doll and she tells her that, that her husband, the ghost of her husband said that the woman who lied only has 13 days to live. Um, and yeah, pretends that she doesn't know that, that the alone is the one who lied, but, but Alona knows that she's the one who lied. Yep. It, so. it, it's such a great and this like next like uh, when you see a bunch of just these smaller like cut scenes where basically yeah. she's she's driving herself mad i mean she she's right right everything that's that, what they do which is so yes. cool so everything that that she has essentially done to the other characters throughout most of the film she's now doing to herself that you know that it's literally her own medicine because they've just said hey whoever lied has 13 days to live and that's it and they've left it at that no one else yeah. is like really i mean there's a little bit of like the phone calls and stuff like that but no one else is really harassing her or, or hounding her right. or anything but in her right. own mind i mean she's she's literally driving herself mad because it's she, her her she guilt knows. is yes. doing it yeah yeah it's you know like margaret is winding string 
and 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 she ta- she she infers it as something and like she walks by a sign that says only like 10 days left to whatever some special or something and she's like no i can't so yeah it's everything whatever and evelyn anchors does this amazing job where she's she's been this super self-possessed cold calculated you know methodical villainess basically you know Moriarty style, whatever, like, you know, throughout the film. And then we start seeing her crack, which is so satisfying because she's been getting away with this this whole time and she's been hurting people, you know. And it's exactly. it's uh it's it's fun to see like she's starting to like just lose her 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 gourd <laughs> over over um you know this this trap that they've set up. So finally, um you know, there's like a day, a, a, a day, you know, six days left and whatever day we count down the days with all these things. She sees the reminder of whatever and, and they're, they're driving her crazy and she's starting to murmur herself and she starts seeing all the faces of everybody that, you know, she's wrong. Dave, David and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, Millard and, 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 you know, everybody, um, these, these people whose blood is on her hands, right? Basically. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and so she finally, you know, with with only like a few minutes left till like the stroke of midnight. It's supposed to be like the minute after midnight she'll die, right? Is is, is the prophecy that yeah. that that they basically make up? It it it's not based on anything, and, and it's not real. They, you know, Norman and Evelyn and Paula, I assume, have sort of figured out this idea of like, here's what we're going to tell her. We're going to push her to a point where she's going to she's she's hopefully going to confess. Um, and the ir- irony is, is that she, you know, she goes to visit, uh, Evelyn Sautel, uh, right before midnight and confesses. And she says, it was me, it, you know, it was me. I, I showed Norman or I showed Miller the, the, uh, the, 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 the plagiarized paper. I pushed David and and whatever yeah, she she confesses it, it it was all her and she you know basically says like I I sent David and and hoped he would go and and kill Norman like I'm just so jealous I'm just so you know da, da, da. yeah um she's trying this is her last ditch effort to to save herself is by just uh, yeah saying, she's I trying to confess <laughs> yeah 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 she's she's confessing hoping hoping that that will will save her because she she is now this this person who's also logical rational you know American woman who does not believe in the superstition that Paula does. Now has it's 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 caught on, and she started to believe it too. So she really believes she's going to die. Um, and we have this kind of Hercule Poirot moment where <laughs> where the door oh, as soon as she confesses, the door opens and everyone shows up. All the all the people that you know, that, you know, uh, uh, her brother who who we haven't mentioned before, but like he, she has a brother who's also part of the college somehow, and his his name he's it's it's a it's the same name as a. Harry Potter character, Severus or something like that. Um, anyway, um, he comes in, but Norman and Paula and everyone, they've all been in the next room and including the, the lady who's in charge of the girls at the college, they've all come in the room and they've heard her. They've heard her say yes. that, you know, she's guilty and everything. So she's, she's all busted. Um, <laughs> her only idea is that to escape and, she, and, and, we see Evelyn anchors, you know, crawls crawls out a window, the the bedroom window, and she tries to walk. She tries to get away by walking across the top of like a lattice that that I think that's part of the porte cochere for the house that that it goes over the driveway and stuff. And it's all this ivy mm-hmm. and 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 plants around. It. And I gotta say, I've seen this movie before, and I hadn't seen it in a while. 
And I kind of forgot about this part where she, she's this woman, she's walking across the thing and she falls through and her neck wraps around the ivy and she hangs herself. Yes, it is a, it is a brutal. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it gets really dark. So it's like, whoa, wait, wait, that just happened. Yeah. Um, and the, the ironic thing being, it is one minute after midnight. Yes. So this prophecy that they made up actually comes true, which is really, again, goes to this whole, again, the, the kind of thesis of the thing is like, do we, are we the masters of our own destiny or do we allow circumstances around us to control us and thereby control our, our own, our destiny? So it's a very, again, like it, it's in that way, the film is completely effective. It really is. And, and it, 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 it leaves it open, you know, open for that interpretation yeah. because it doesn't, exactly. like you said, it doesn't land on one side or the other because, right. you know, yeah, you know, they could, you had this big kind of reveal of, okay, we, we kind of sit you up because we found you out and we just made up the stuff about 13 mm. days and stuff. But then at, right. again, at the same time, you know, it goes back to the, the, the circle of, immunity or, or, or what have you right. was broken. And ever since then, all these bad things have happened, including yeah. her dying at 1201 after, you know, on the exactly. 13th day. <laughs> and and, and Il- Ilona believed it enough that it actually happened. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not the, the prophecy itself. It's, it's the fact that Ilona believed the prophecy. So that's, yeah, exactly. I, I just think, I just think that, that, that elevates it beyond being just a, like a, like I said, a little one hour pot boiler. Of a, of a film from the 1940s. Um, really cool. Um, and great performances too, just from everyone, including Cheney. Like just, you know. Yes. Um, def, definitely Evelyn Anchors, uh, definitely Anne Gwynn, um, and, and, this, and, and a really great supporting cast. And again, just like, you know, shot beautifully and, and executed, just, 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 you know, nailed on and stuff. So. Yeah. And you know, that's, it's, yeah. I think this is the, at least in the universal horror genre where uh, I think 99% of everyone listening to the show knows Evelyn Anchors from. I think this is the only movie that she actually dies in, let alone play, you know, the, uh, like a, the villain, you know, yeah. the, the, the bad guy <laughs> or bad woman in this case. It seems like you could, I mean, you probably count in your hand that the number of leading actresses in a universal horror movie that, that die actually it's, you know, it's always like Jenny, you know, who goes to get her palm read in Wolfman or something. Yeah. It's not the main, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not Anne Cunliffe or anything. So I don't know. Um, uh, but there's a funny little denouement, which again, these things can normally be pretty cheesy, but uh, Norman <laughs> and, and Paula are walking and they, and then they both knock wood at the same time. Yeah. They both like tap on the tree. So again, it's this little, just, I, I like it. It's, it's a very subtle, fun little reference to, it lets you off on an up note, but it also is like, <clears throat> there's a little, just a lingering question. And I, Again, we always talk about like the Universal films are so good at at, at suggesting the possibility of that that there's more going on than we accept. There there might there might be uh, magic. There might be mummies. There might be invisible men. There might be wolfmen. Exactly. There might be yeah. Animals. No, it, it, so. it's great. And you know, mm-hmm. you have to. I know we've talked about this, and, and you and Scott have talked about this before too. But uh, you know, Cheney and and anchors worked together several times. You know, throughout mm-hmm. the '40s at, at, at Universal, and it's no secret that they didn't necessarily get along and or, or enjoy each other's yeah. company but you would never have known it you know just by watching them act together the the chemistry is there and and you know there's no yeah. there's no hesitation you know you, you believe no. larry talbot is in love with 
Gwen Conliffe and, and, you know, vice versa yes, in, in this movie. And, you know, so if anything, if anything in this film, you kind of get, she gets to be a kind of like a little, <laughs> she gets, yeah, you know, cool with them and stuff. Yeah. So, so maybe there's just a little bit of like, Hey, I, I can channel this a little bit. Like, yeah, who knows? Uh, but, um, I mean, I think that's really, that's really it, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the, I think the professionalism of both, you know, actors of anchors and, and Chaney oh, to, for sure. to just be yeah. like, you know, well, you know, this is, this is what, what we're going to do. And it's, uh, you know, we're, we're here for two weeks or whatever the shooting time is for this B movie that in their minds, I'm sure they thought nobody would ever see again, but they, they right. M- all, m- much you know? less, less, much less be talking about for two hours, you know, <laughs> however many decades, yeah, later, 85 right? years later. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Um, uh, as now, no, you're you're actually more intimately familiar with the Inner Sanctum films than than I, Livio. So, on the rankings of them, where where would Weird Woman be? Like, how close to the top? Uh, for me, it'd be pretty close. I think I would rank this probably third. If 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 I were to rank the uh, the Inner Sanctum, Strange Confession would be number one. I think that's yeah that that that's kind of far and away my my personal favorite. the The next one would be Calling Doctor Death. That's the the first one. With Cheney and Patricia Morrison, um, which right. is, I, you know, ho- hopefully I'll get a chance to to join in that one. That, that's that's got uh, oh yeah, th- that's some fantastic, fantastic stuff in that one. And then Weird Woman, uh, just because it, it, I think out of uh, the, so there's six inner sanctums, and out of all six, this is the one that really kind of dealt directly um, with a supernatural element, even though it was more kind of superstitions mm-hmm. uh, of, of breaking traditions and curses and things like that. But still it left right. it, left it open ended and, and had that aura about it of, of this other power, if you will, the power of superstition and how it can affect people and yeah. in, in, in their lives. And most of the other, I think yeah. the other five are pretty kind of straight, Melodramas, yeah. thrillers, you know, uh, kind of cerebral. And, ca- ca- yeah, psychological yeah. thrillers more than, but but more based in like a reality. Let's say yes, uh, um, for sure. That's interesting. So, all right. Well, no, I can't wait to do. I'm. We'll be doing Doctor Death again, uh, you and me, this year. I'm sure. So I can't wait for that one too. It's great, and it's always it's always good to revisit. Uh, revisit everybody in their own. So uh, I'll I'll you know, pl- put the put the same question to you for since you're not as intimately. Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. familiar with the inner sanctums and used to seeing Cheney as the Wolfman or or the Mummy and, yeah. and what that. When you when you see a movie like this and he's he's kind of against type, so to speak. What is your what are your thoughts yeah. or your takeaways? I I always enjoy these. I see seeing him play a, a man, um, and you know, just, just a straightforward thing. Um, you know, my two of my three of my favorite Lon Chaney roles are Mice and Men is Lenny, um. Uh, High Noon, where he plays the remember he plays the old yeah. sheriff yeah. guy, um, who's who's kind of too afraid to confront the the bad guys and stuff. He's, I think he's incredible in that. And um, Spider Baby, yes, where he's the caretaker of the of these two two girls who obviously are 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 messed up and stuff. And and I think he delivers such sincere. You know, I mean, I mean the uh, the the magic of Lon Chaney Jr. is that whether he's playing. Lenny or that old sheriff character whose name I, I don't quite remember um, in High Noon or Lawrence Talbot uh, or, or Norman in this film. Um, you know, he brings this, this pathos, but this sympathy and the humanity to whatever he did. He didn't play these roles that much different than he played those roles. He just, um, 
kind of like John Wayne, kind of like whatever. Like John Lon Chaney kind of had a thing he did, but yeah. he could apply that across the board and find that vulnerability. It's the vulnerability of a, of a big imposing man, right? Like like physically, he 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 plays against his physical type so much. He does. Where he, he really plays, does, yeah. he plays like this tortured, soulful character inside a physically imposing body. Um, that that kind of male vulnerability inside is, I think, really ahead of its time for, you know, we'd see that more kind of into the 60s and 70s with Robert Redford or Dustin Hoffman or, or, or you know, characters like that. Um, maybe maybe Kirk Douglas a little bit earlier on in the 50s, but but at this point, you know, you've got the, your male leads otherwise here this you know it's it's Humphrey Bogart and John Wayne and and all these there's there's a machismo that that uh that suffuses male leading parts in this era Gary Cooper Alan Ladd senior whatever um uh Cheney brought that that uh gentleness inside the the, the fragility of the male ego kind of um and made it, he put it right out front. It's not just lurking in the background, kind of like it is with Bogart's Rick Blaine and in, in, in Casablanca or what have you. Um, he put it right out there in front. You see a man, you see the torment inside a man on his face so often in Cheney. Yeah. And he just wasn't afraid to do that and play that in character. And, and really, that became his hallmark. That became the thing he was able to do that through lack of you know, opportunity or maybe skill or whatever, I don't know, um, so many other leading men of his era weren't able to do. And I just think it makes him unique. And it and it makes the, the characters he inhabits so much more sympathetic and, and understanding. And if there's, like we say, there's one thing that Universal did, it was create these, even when they're, they're quote, monsters, create these sympathetic characters. And that's why he, you know, just ruled this era of, of Universal. No, oh, yeah, that's, so. well, very well said. And that's, I couldn't yeah. agree more. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I think I I I got to say I kind of like Weird Woman a little bit more than Strange Confessions so far and it is because of its the the touch on the supernatural in it. I think that it just dovetails so well with so much else of of Universal's uh you know stories if it's like the Mad Ghoul or or what have you, you know. Um so 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 far, but I I can't wait to get into Doctor Death. So we'll, we'll, guys, we'll be doing that in, in probably a few months. We'll, we'll give a we'll give you a little break from the Inner Sanctum. We're going to do some other uh, 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 films coming up. We're you know we have in store for you. But in the meantime, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We enjoyed talking about it for all this time, and uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna sign off. So yeah. Livio, thanks so much. Glad we got to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for everyone you know listening, for if, you, if you're looking for a list of easy. Really easy and achievable New Year's resolutions. Um, you know, go to whatever your whatever service you're listening to our show on, whether that's Apple Podcast or or what have you, and and give us a rating, give us a give us a like to let us know what you think. We've yeah. uh, we've 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 not had a few a few ratings, uh, good or bad, um, at all in some time. So we'd love to hear feedback and love to get uh, some attention there. So you know, give give us. Uh, Give us a, a good rating if you feel we deserve it, and, and let us know what you think. Leave us a comment. Yeah, that help that helps us a lot. That helps other people find the podcast too, kind of like minded folks and stuff. So that, that really that absolutely is important. And uh, and also, uh, yeah, you, please go back and if you if you're a recent listener, go back and check out our library. We now have about 
I think we're over 50 episodes of, of, of uh, films we've talked about. So there's quite a many hours of entertainment in yes. store for you if you want to go back into the archives, into back into 2021 and 2022. And we're excited for where we're going in 2023. So anyway, thanks, everybody. My name is Jim. This is Livio. Uh, I'm going to say thank you and good night from the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode, but the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Gould. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Ahrens. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Podcast.